All right. We, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week with the issue of Lotit Godidu, and specifically, we're going to focus all of our attention today on perhaps the most famous disputing schools that exist in Jewish history, which is Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. Uh, just uh, to rid ourselves of a pedestrian notion, um, often you will hear when people who are not schooled uh, talk about uh, disputes, they talk about Hillel and Shammai, and they have somehow the impression that Hillel and Shammai had lots of disputes. The, the reality is that we record four, maybe five halachic disputes between Hillel and Shammai, they are presented and described as being very different kind of personalities. Um, and we do hear rulings of, in, of Hillel individually and of Shammai individually um, that may have been uh, iconoclastic rulings. But as far as um, direct debates and disputes, it's Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. So before we, we're gonna get into them in a moment, I wanna kind of bring us a little refresher from last week and remind you of one question that I kind of put out there at the beginning that, uh, that I promised I'd get to this week. The uh, discussion in Masachet Yivamot, at the end of the first parak, which we've already, we're already uh, is in, a, in, in the dust of our page turning, um, was about the Mishnah at the end of the first parak that said that even though Beit Shema and Beit Hillel disagreed about the Tsarot, Tsarat Ervab, and then they had other disagreements one other area of disagreement is mentioned in the Mishnah, which is Tumav Tahara. Nonetheless, they were comfortable interacting, intermarrying between the houses and working together with Taharot, even though their standards were different. That led to a discussion in the Gemara, which we may get to today, uh, which was the Sugiah that kind of launched this whole thing, which was whether or not Beit Shammai was maintaining their own separatist position uh, and that would lead, of course, to some interesting problems uh, of how could they intermarry, because this girl, according to you, is legit, according to me, is a mamzeret, and vice versa, or at least other, in, in, in the opposite case is problematic. Uh, the same thing with Tumava Tahara. Uh, and so the question is, does, does that mean that Beit Shammai had caved in, as it were, and was now practicing like Beit Hillel? And a question the Gemara does not address what we're going to address in this year today is when is this? We're going to try to put some chronology stamp onto the whole process, going from Hillel Shammai to post-Khorban to even uh, the Amoraic period and see how that all plays out. But the question that I posed last week was the pasuk that, uh, the, that the Sifri, and it starts with the Sifri, and we see it uh, in the Bavli and the Yushalmi, the pasuk that is interpreted or applied to the problem of divided legislation or divided rulings um, is lotit godedu, which the lotit godedu is about avarazara. It's about cutting yourself in a pagan manner, uh, either in response to a death or just as pagan worship. And then lotit godedu is darshaned in a in a, um, a very different way, which is lotasu agudot agudot, not to make yourself into cliques or separatist groups. Um, and the question is, why is that there? Because why is that the vehicle for launching this issue of, of Agudot Agudot from Lotit Godadu? We do have other psukim in the Torah, uh, such as the whole parsha of Beitin Hagadol in, in Dvarim Yud Zayin, that we could have uh, picked up on and said, uh, here is the model that there is one place and where the ruling comes out, that's it. And we do have a rule of Zakein Mamre. If an individual on the court rules against the majority and then goes and issues a ruling uh, in favor of his minority rejected opinion, then he could be liable for the death penalty. And there's a whole Sugiyan Masachat Zanhedrin about that. That would have been a great source. Why are they pinning it on this? And I added to that the fact that the Rambam in Sefer Mitzvot in the mitzvah of Gedida, of the prohibition of cutting yourself, then added that uh, extension of Agudot. Uh, and in the Mishnah Torah, he did not put the problem of Agudot in Hilchot Talmud Torah or Hilchot Sanhedrin, but rather in Hilchot Avodah Zarah, as we saw. And the question is, why is this thing attached to Avodah Zarah? Why is it in an independent halacha? that operates from Sukim about legislation and is brought in the, uh, in the 
Gemara and Sanhedrin and brought in the Rambam in as a as part of the running of Abetin. Why is it there? So that that was sort of what we and that really covers the first um, uh, two pages. Where are we here? First page of this new handout, which is reformulated and then a lot added from the previous handout. So I'd like to take a look. We're going to do a little bit of a survey uh, of the of Beit Shammai Beit Hillel. But first, I want to put, as I promised, I want to put a chronological bit of a stamp on it. Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, by self-identification, are followers of each one of them of a great sage, one the follower of Hillel, or probably pro, more probably properly pronounced Hillel although don't tell the folks at any of the schools or organizations, but uh, the proper pronunciation is probably Hillel, uh, but, um, and the other is Shammai, spelled variously with or without an Aleph, Shin Mem Yod, Shin Mem Aleph Yod. Um, where did they live and when did they live? So Hillel uh, lived originally, originated, as we learned number, number of times in Bavel. He made Aliyah. He lived in the town of Jericho. He lived in Yericho. And he evidently lived in Yericho during the time of Herod. So that puts him just before the turn of the millennium. In other words, uh, Herod is uh, 30 BCE, so it's roughly that time. And the reason I mentioned 30 BCE is we do have a tradition, although it seems to be a rounded off tradition, that Hillel was the head of the Sanhedrin 100 years before the destruction. That would put him at 30 BCE. So we're going to put him roughly in that time. So Shammai is a contemporary of Hillel. We see that numerous times. Not that they necessarily have interactions. They do have disputes. We don't know if they're frontal disputes, but we do hear about stories. Question is how historically timed these stories are of individuals who interact with the famous story of the three converts uh, who uh, each goes to Shammai and then with a crazy request and Shammai rejects him and then he goes to Hillel makes it sound as if Shammai and Hillel are around at the same time, and the famous Mishnah of the dispute about smicha, which, uh, in which you have the Zugot, Yosef and Yochanan, Yosef and Yuezer, Shmaya Vav Talion, etc. It comes down to Hillel and Menachem, Yatsam Menachem and Ichnas Shammai. So it's not like Hillel and Shammai are colleagues, or at the same time, Shammai seems to be a Yerushalmi. And, uh, and so they have students. The question is, what is Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai? Is it a building? Is it a campus? What is it? And how long does it last? Um, and and the, the interesting thing is that Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai really are the first, with a few exceptions, the first named disputants we have in our literature. Meaning, we have the famous dispute about the smicha. That's the one dispute that we have. We saw it in Chagiga going back to about 100 BCE, about whether you do smichan or korban and yom tov. Uh, but besides that, you have very few named disputes or even unnamed disputes. Halakha seems to be something of a holistic uh, piece, which is presented as is. And suddenly with Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, you hear a plethora of disputes about how things should be done. Now, we don't hear names of members of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, except after the destruction. Because after the destruction, we hear about certain individuals who are very famous, and they are identified as members of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Question is, is Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel operating, or are Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel operating after the destruction? And the other question I want to put kind of in the back of your head so we'll think about it as we go through this material, and this is by no means close to an exhaustive survey of the material by Shammai Beit Hillel. It's absolutely representative and hopefully fairly representative. Um, is what was the state of halacha during this hundred years from just before the turn of the millennium to let's say 20, 30 years after the destruction, let's say zero to 100. What was the state of halacha? And remember, when we talk about the state of halacha, we are talking about a very limited group because what you have in Israel at the time is many sects, each of them with their own set of rules and their own set of practices and their own set of standards and their own set of clannishness and closing off. So within the rabbinates, as we'll call them, which is an anachronism, Pharisees might be a better name, but it has an ugly connotation, at least in English. Um, so within our group, 
our Masora. Um, you, you, what was what was operating? What were people doing? That's part of the question. Now, what we find when we get to Yavne, and I'm using Yavne as kind of the marker here, because Yavne, what that means is post-Khurban, post-destruction. And for the first two generations in Yavne, basically from the year 70 to about the year 110 or so, first two generations in Yavne, you have great leaders who we know are identified as students of either Beit Shammai or Beit Hillel, most famously, Rabbi Eliezer, who, according to the report, seemed to be the most brilliant mind of that generation, is a Shammaite. Rabbi Yoshua, his famous disputant and colleague, is a Beit Hillelite. But things are not at all clear. We're going to see a number of different uh, pieces here. And along the way, I'm going to try to tag them, if possible, with time so we can get a sense of how things happen and how things develop. And we're going to report about it from the end of that period to see how things go. Okay, a lot of promises. Let's get to the text. All right. The first source here, source eight, was our Mishnah in Yivamot. The Tosefta that we saw last week expanded on it and talked about that many other areas where Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel disagreed on areas which had no mutually satisfactory ground, like ours with the Tzarot. Uh, and for instance, uh, the problem of uh, Kiddushin. We talked about this last week. According to Beit Hillel, you give a woman Shavapruta, she's Mikudeshet. According to Beit Shemai, she's nothing. According to Beit Shemai, you give her a dinar, she's Mikudeshet. So if you have a girl who a man gives a Shavapruta to, According to Beit Hillel, she's Mikudeshet. According to Beit Shammai, she's free. Another man comes and gives her Shaved Dinar. According to Beit Hillel, that means nothing because she's already married to the first guy. According to Beit Shammai, she's married to the second guy. Now what happens? Who does she live with? And whoever she lives with, somebody's going to have a problem with it. Right? So there are some areas which are, there's, no, there's no, no one solution that everybody's going to be happy with. Uh, there's no such thing as being Machmir and everybody be satisfied with that, just like in our case of the Tsarot. All right. So um, we have the following challenge to the statement that they would be able to get along. The Talmud Rishalmi in our spot in Yavamot says as follows. And all of these other things. All right, so that's the Tosefta, which is the expansion of the Mishnah, which says that even though they disagreed with all of these things, they had no problem intermarrying. And the Yushalmi who did the attacks and says, What are you talking about? <laughs> according to one person, your, your legitimate marriage partner is, according to us, a Mamzeret. How can you say that they could possibly do that? Of course, assuming that they're still maintaining their own positions. And we give an example. The one I just gave, a guy comes up to a girl, gives her a pruta, and a second guy comes up to her and gives her a shaved dinar. And my according to Beit Shammai, the first Kiddushin were garnished because they were not, not sufficient, insufficient amount of money. She's Mekudesha to the second guy. According to Beit Hillel, the first Kiddushin are valid, the second guy's Kiddushin are meaningless. If she stays with the first guy, that kid, that kid's a mamzer, because she's really married to the second guy. And according to Beit Hillel, she's already married to the first guy. If she goes to the second guy, that kid's a mamzer. So how, how do you, there's, there's, not, there's no satisfactory solution here. So So he gives one solution, which is that Beit Shammai would concede to Beit Hillel to be Machmir, which would mean as follows, that Beit Shammai would, and this is sort of the way the Bible says it, but not exactly, Beit Shammai would say, okay, you have a girl who accepted Shavapruta. According to us, that's nothing. But we're not going to allow one of our guys to give a Shaved Dinar because we understand that according to you, she's married. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to go and say now, the original guy has to go and give her now a Shaved Dinar. Okay, that makes everybody happy. In other words, this is a way of saying we're going to maintain our halachic position, but we're going to find a way to get along. By the way, that's doable. We call that paper plates. You know exactly what I mean. All right, you're, you're, somebody wants to invite you over, and uh, your standards are not their standards, right? So, 
paper plates. Uh, it's a shorthand for finding a way that everybody's going to be happy, right? So you, you could do that. And then Shami goes through this. And then it then presents a Tosefta. We're going to see it in the Tosefta first, but I want to show it to you here. Kadiratani. Kol Anybody who wants to take all the stringencies on, wherever Beit Shammai is stringent, they'll do that. Wherever Beit Hillel is stringent, they want to do that. We call that OCD or just flipping out or whatever. That the, About that, we apply the verse, the fool walks in darkness. A guy who wants to take all the leniencies, that guy's wicked. Either you be a follower of Beit Shammai all the way, for lenient and for strict, or all the way. Now, that sounds like that statement's being made at a point where Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel are two options. But you got to be consistent. That's all. Which, if you think about it, goes exactly against the verse that we're talking about. Lotit Kodidu. So in other words, you can be a total Beit Shammaiite, just take all, the whole picture, the whole package, or be a total Beit Hillelite. That's fine, as long as you don't either engage your psychosis by taking all the chumrot, or engage your, in your self-indulgence by taking all the kulo, right? And then it says, how did the tamer anshaloy atzad batko? We're going to hear about the batko. This is only true before the heavenly voice came out and made a determination. And we're going to see something more than mildly ironic about that whole story. Once the voice came out, the halacha is which means the previous options off the table. Nobody has a right to follow Beit Shammai anymore. That's it. That's a pretty strong statement. If you violate what Beit Hillel said, you are chayav mita. You are liable for death. We'll see what the source of that is. Tani and now here's the background to it. A bat kol, a heavenly voice came out, and we don't know where or when yet. And the heavenly voice said, Both Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel's words represent the will of the living God, but the halacha always follows Beit Hillel. By the way, that's not true either. There are many cases where we rule like Beit Shammai. Right? And we're going to even see a, a, a group, a set, or a type of case where Beit Hillel reflected and backed off and accepted Beit Shammai. Right? So where did this batkol happen? And this is telling. because they, They're normally not that interested in, in, in uh, history. Chazal are not historians. And they're not that interested where and when the batkol, unless it's meaningful to the sugya. Watch this. Rabbi B'Shem Rabbi Yochanan Amar, the call came out in Yavna. That is telling. We're going to see why. But so far, we've got some information and a lot of questions, and not we're not, not yet we're not yet getting there. Okay, let's take a look at a, a couple other cases of uh, Beit Hillel versus Beit Shammai. And again, the timing, but we're going to get a little better sense of timing here. A machloket in Masachet Sukkah. All right. You're sitting in the sukkah, but your sukkah is very small. And you're, and so the sukkah is big enough for you to sit, and maybe there's enough room for the part of the table where your food is, but the rest of the table's in the house. All right, here we go. Mishaya Roshovru Boba Sukkah. So you, you, and most of your body is in the sukkah, your head's in the sukkah. The table's in the house. So you're eating, you're pulling the food out in the sukkah, but the food's on the, on the table in the house. Beit Shammai poslin machshirin. The Gemara in Sukkah talks about the language here, but poslin machshirin is a little bit awkward. Truth is, there's two machlokot going on. Amru Beit Hillel Beit Shammai, but this is what we're going to get to. So Beit Hillel turned to Beit Shammai in their argument that this is a valid way of fulfilling the mitzvah of Sukkah, and they tell the following story. Because remember what I've told you guys 14 million times. This Maserab, the story about what the rabbis actually did, is far more compelling as a proof, far more persuasive than any ruling. The rabbi actually did it is better. So here's a story. Again, the spelling. 
So now, Ziknei Beit Shammai, Ziknei Beit who are these? So who's talking? Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel are talking. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that there's, they're having a reunion? Does that mean that uh, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel are doing an exchange program? No, because again, they're not two schools in the sense of two campuses. It means that there are scholars throughout Israel, and right now, at whatever point, they're in Yavne or in Beit Sharim or in Tveria, wherever they are, and they are from these different schools. And they and Beit, the, the Beit Hillelites tell the Beit Shamaites, we know a story about Ziknei Beit Shammai and Ziknei Beit Hillel. Now, what does that mean, Ziknei Beit Shammai and Ziknei Beit Hillel? So I've seen some people who want to make the argument that it means the true wise people are elders. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means we are the second generation of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, and we have a story for you about the first generation, meaning the generation before ours of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, here's what happened. They went to visit Rabbi Yochan ben Achoronit. We don't know much about him yet, but we're going to find out in a little bit. They went, he lived in Malay Beit Choron, we assume. You guys know where that is, not, not far from Modin. They went to visit him. They found him sitting in the sukkah. Exactly our case. They went, they found him sitting in the sukkah, and the table was in the house. In some versions of the Mishnah, it reads, meaning, and they didn't say anything to him. The better versions of the Mishnah don't have that in it. But they came and they found him sitting in the sukkah. Now, why is this meaningful? Because Beit Hillel's argument is that this is a valid way of performing the mitzvah. And here we find the great rabbi sitting there like that must be okay. You're going to find out something interesting about Yochanan Chorani and why it's such a, a, a hot story, I mean, a, a controversial type of story, using him as the model. Amrulam Beit Shammai, Misham Raya, Beit Shammai turns to Beit Hillel and says, you're going to be a proof from that story? Afein Amrulam, you left something out. Im kach oheg, lo that the elders said to him, now, which elders? All the elders? Or the elders of Beit Shammai? And that makes a critical difference in understanding the whole machlok of Beit Shammai Beit Hillel. So for right, right now, we're going to read it one way. They'll go back and read it the other way. Right now, we're going to read it that the current generation of Beit Shammai says, our elders, our forebears, the Ziknei Beit Shammai, they walked in, visited the Sam in the sukkah, in this tiny little sukkah, and the, 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 he was eating, and the, and the table was in the house. And Beit Hillel reports this as a positive story. You see, it's okay for rabbis to sit with the table in the house. It must be okay. And Beit, and Beit Shammai turns and says, no, you know what our elders told him? Our elders told, told, told him, if that's how, you, how you've sat in a sukkah, you've never fulfilled the mitzvah of sukkah. Pretty hurtful statement, by the way. You've never fulfilled the mitzvah of sukkah in your life, if that's what you've been doing. That's way number one, which means that Beit Hillel was trying to prove that your elders agreed that this is valid because your elders went to visit this rabbi and were fine with him sitting like that. And Beit Shammai says, that's not true. Our elders actually spoke up and protested. That's possibility one. Possibility two is that Beit Shammai says, do you know that all of them told him that you weren't fulfilling the mitzvah? In other words, the elders of Beit Hillel agree with us. This was the halacha. The elders of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel all agreed. You have to have the table out in the sukkah. You guys are wrong. You're not keep continuing the tradition of the elder elders of Beit Hillel correctly. And it's a phenomenal difference. Because in the first read of it, which is the more conventional read, but I don't think it's a more persuasive read or more compelling read. In the first read of it, there's a machloket that starts with the immediately Beit Hillel, Beit Shama. And it continues and it's never settled. And they're trying to settle it in this generation by proving from a story that happened with the respected leaders of Bicham and Hillel in the previous generation, and the reports are at odds, and that's why we can't settle it. But the other way of reading it is that Bicham is turning to Hillel and saying, this was always the halacha. We don't disagree about this. This is not a valid way of being circle. And Haraya, 
when we visit that when your elders and our elders went to visit this man together, they agreed that he wasn't fulfilling the mitzvah. Very different way to read it. Parenthetically, and it's and it should not be ignored. Buried within the story is something that tells you a lot about Beit Shammai Beit Hillel, but it's one side of the coin. Beit Shammai Beit Hillel on Cholamoid went to go visit a rabbi together. In other words, they're buddies and they're friends and they spend time in Yontif together. They're not two warring factions. That's not going to be the only picture painted, but we have to be sensitive to what's happening in the story. Okay. So the reason I injected this Mishnah first is because it's going to come up in this very famous sugya. Here's the bot call. Ready for the bot call? Be sensitive to hear it. Amar Rabbi Abba Amar Shmuel. Now that means this report is coming from Bavel 200 years later. The wording here is very odd. For three years, Beit Shemayim Beit Hillel were disagreeing. Halalo omrim halacha kimotenu, halalo omrim halacha kimotenu. Beit Shemayim for three years were insisting the halacha follows us. And Beit Hillel says the halacha follows us. Now, by the way, what does that mean? Because there's no context in this Gemara of a particular debate. It's not like they're disagreeing about the, the whether lechi vikora or two lechis for, for heter mavu. It's not like a specific machloka. It's brought as a general statement that for three years, Beit Shammai is claiming our positions should be the halacha, and Beit Hillel says our positions should be the halacha. What are they disagreeing about? That's a very odd kind of disagreement to have. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, to have a disagreement about a particular point and say, we think that the halacha should be like this. I'll take the most famous machloket that's sort of a subset of this was Rabbi Eliezer and the Chachamim about Tanurosh Shalachnoi. You all know the story. So that was a particular point about Tumat Kelim. Rabbi Eliezer says, halacha follows me, it's Tahor. The Chacham said, no, Halacha follows us, it's Tameh. And by the way, notice that they didn't say, sorry, Rabbi Ezer, Halacha follows us, see around with Stav Mincha. They didn't do that. They kept talking. And the tree moved, and the stream moved, and the walls caved in. We know the story. So for here, for, and here what's happening is Beit Shema and Beit Hillel are having an ongoing disagreement, not about one point, but about who's in charge. Uh, it's more than who's in charge, as you'll see. But who's Position should be the halacha in everything. All right, for three years. Yatsa batkol. Now, batkol literally means a faint voice or like an, uh, um, uh, a voice without a body. And batkol, which by the way, we're going to get to at the end of Yevomot in a very different context, but a batkol is understood in Agadic literature to be sort of the last vestige of prophecy. You're hearing a voice, which is a voice from heaven. A bot call came out and said, Elu elu divrei Elohim chayim hein. Meaning, the words of Beit Hillel and the words of Beit Shemai. Now, by the way, which words? Which words of Beit Hillel and Beit Shemai? So it must be referring to everything. Meaning, when Beit Hillel presents the ruling or Beit Shemai presents the ruling, they're both representing the words of the living God. Now, you see the inherent problem in both those statements, meaning the inherent problem in the first statement, and then the, the conundrum of the second statement versus the first statement. First of all, if how could Elu Ve'elu be Divrelim Chayim? How could they both be the words of the living God when they're at odds? They say, Pasul and Kasher, Tamei and Tahor, Mutar and Asur, Mamzer and not Mamzer in our case. How could they both be the words of the living God? That's problem one. Problem two is that once you say that they have seemingly equal divine legitimacy or the divine imprimatur, then how can you say So the Gemara only picks up the second problem. We'll come back to the first problem. The Gemara makes an assumption, which is there has to be a ruling one way or the other. So I said, but why did Beit Hillel get the nod? And by the way, it wasn't a single nod. It was a broad nod for everything. 
And the answer is very unusual. Because Beit Hillel were easygoing and they were humble. And when they would teach, they would not only teach their words, they would teach Beit Shammai's words. They would put Beit Shammai's words before their own. Now, first of all, it's a mind-blowing thing. You would think Beit Hillel versus Beit Shammai the reason is because Beit Hillel, on an average, got 500 points more in their SATs. Because everybody in Beit Hillel was on uh, Dean's list. They got five smichas, and they only had three smichas. Nothing of the sort. Beit Hillel wins the day because they're nice guys. Very strange. I'm deliberately making it sound like that because we want to tighten the definition. But now you're going to see something remarkable. And we still have to come back to how could both opposite positions be the, be the words of the living God. There, the, the position here is that Beit, Shem, Beit Hillel's rulings become the halakha because Beit Hillel is Noah, they're humble, they're meek, and they not only include Beit Shammai in their own teachings, they put Beit Shammai first, which, by the way, is an old debate trick. You know, sometimes it's better to put your opponent's position first and then your own, and then you get to make your own and better. But this is presented as a nice thing. But watch what happens. And they quote the Mishnah that we just read about the Sukkah. Now, what does that tell you? Got to step back and think about it. Beit Hillel, when they teach, they teach Beit Shammai's rulings and their own rulings. What does that tell you about Beit Shammai? It's if Beit Hillel is praised, because when they teach, they not only teach their own rule, their, their own rulings, they teach Beit Shammai's rulings also. What is that thought about Beit Shammai? Beit Shammai doesn't. Beit Shammai doesn't. Beit Shammai just presents halacha. They don't say Beit Shammai Omrim. We are Beit Shammai. We teach the halacha. And Beit Hillel says, no, Beit Shammai says that. We say this. And like that, they put Beit Shammai first. And now watch that. Ke'otashe shaninu. Are you ready for like, uh, ready for blast off here? This is very big. He quote the Mishnah in Sukkah. And the Mishnah in Sukkah says, you know, if you're Sukkah, if it was the, you're in, in the Sukkah, but the table's in the house, Beit Shammai say this, Beit Hillel say that, there's a story, all right. Now, we just read it. Who's, who's the author of this Mishnah, according to what we just read? I'll take it more. Mm-hmm. Who's the author of all the Mishnayot in the eighth parak of Prachot, which lists all the Machlokot between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel of the meal? Beit Hillel. Beit Hillel. <laughs> and I'm going to make it bigger. Who then is the author of the Mishnah, capital T, capital M? Beit Hillel. <laughs> Think about how big this is. Because according to at least this report, if Beit Shammai has a Mishnah, what does it look like? Here's the halacha. How, wait, how does Rabbi Yehuda Nasi fit into this? I'm, I'm confused. I'm confused. He said, who compiled the Mishnah, you just said? I say who compiled, who's the author? Remember, Behuda Nasi authored very little. He authored very little. The Mishnayot were authored okay. starting in the year 100 or so, and then they start developing, and it's in the middle of the second century that they start taking form. Behuda Nasi comes along at the beginning of the third century and starts and you know, winnows and, and, and organizes, etc. But yeah. the, perhaps, he, perhaps he was biased and selective as to who. But, but notice that these Mishnayot come from Beit Hillel, meaning all the Mishnayot we're familiar with come from Beit Hillel because they all include both opinions. Mm. All right? So it's something remarkable to think about. And then Did the Gemara we... goes on and says, Now, this, by the way, is, is a little odd again because you're saying the Halakha follows Beit Hillel. Why? They're nice guys. They're easygoing. They're they're humble. They respect their their opponents, right? Okay. Anybody who lowers himself, Hakadosh Baruch raises him up. This is a pretty strong statement. Anybody who is haughty, God, God puts him down. Anybody who runs after greatness, greatness flees from him. Anybody who runs away from greatness, greatness follows him. I remember a teacher of mine once telling me there are some people who 
run away from greatness because, you know, they want greatness to catch up with them. So they keep turning around and come, hurry up, come on, catch up with me. But um, if somebody really avoids the spotlight, they end up in the spotlight. This is just a series of, of, of mishalim, of aphorisms. Anybody who tries to do things too quickly so the, the hour doesn't give him time, and anybody who allows things to pass, so he has time. It doesn't matter. It fits in with the, with the previous sentence. Okay. Now, the Yushalmi says a similar thing. It's a Yushalmi in Sukkah, in our sugi, in that Sukkah about the Sukkah that we saw, but they add one thing in. Why did Beit Hillel merit? And again, this is not in one case. This is broadly. Why did Beit Hillel merit that the Halacha follows them? Amar Rabbi again, now, we're talking about Amoraim. We're not talking about a, a, a period comment. We're talking about a much later comment. They would always present Beit Shammai's words before theirs, which, by the way, may mean that in his take, the Beit Shammai, we don't, we've never seen Beit Shammai Mishnayot. Maybe Beit Shammai Mishnayot had Beit Shammai's opinion first and Beit Shammai Hillel second. Whereas according to the other version, Beit Shammai Mishnayot had no names in it. Lord And this, I think, is actually under cutting into what the Bible is trying to tell us. The Beit Hillel would hear Beit Shammai's arguments and they would concede. In other words, they were willing to hear what Beit, Hillel, Beit Shammai had to say and say, you know what, you're right. And they would concede the case. I'll give you one case, one famous case. We all know it. All right, it shows up a few times in Shas, and that is half. Slave half ben chori, half evid half ben chori. Remember the case? All right. Sammy the slave is owned by uh, Oscar the owner. All right. Oscar dies. All right. And uh, Sammy the slave is now uh, bequeathed to um, uh, to uh, Nick the nice guy and Mel the mean guy. Okay. So Nick the nice guy immediately frees Sammy the slave. But Mike, the mean guy, doesn't free him. So he's now a half Evid, half Ben Chorin. So Beit Hillel says that Sammy works for Mike on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and on Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, works for himself. Makes sense. Beit Shammai turns to Beit Hillel and says, you've taken care of his boss. You've taken care of his financial thing. You haven't taken care of him. He can't marry anybody. He can't marry a Jewish girl because he's half slave. He can't marry a slave girl because he's half Jewish. And rather, what you do is you force Nick the neat, mean, Mike the mean guy to free him. You have Sammy write a star for half his value. He owes that to Mike. And now he's a free man. And Beit Hillel conceded the point and changed their mind and ruled like Beit Shammai. And there's numerous cases like that. They're all collected in Eduyot of cases where Beit Hillel changed their mind and were persuaded by Beit Shammai. The Yushalmi points that out as being the reason Beit Hillel is the halacha. So I want, before going further, I want to go back and look at these two conundra that we have in this statement. First of all, how can two opposite positions both be the words of the living God? And second of all, how can Beit Hillel's character traits be the driving force behind accepting their rulings? Well, perhaps, perhaps the idea is intent, that the intent is, is, is interpreting Hashem, however you rule. So it's, it's, it, there's perhaps a bit of Kedusha in what you're saying. Okay, good. So but, uh, sorry, what, you're talking about the first question, right? The first question, correct. Right, correct. good. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you, you're, right, you're right on Sherwin. We're going we're gonna to build up on that. Okay. And the second question is, why is there character traits? I mean, would you think that if, that if there's, uh, there's going to be some very big rulings coming before this, this CODIS in the next year? Um, right, the uh, the Texas law, all these things are going to come. Uh, the new Idaho Idaho law are going to come for SCOTUS. They're going to decide. You think they're going to say, "Well, you know, uh, Sotomayor is a really nice woman, and uh, and and Kavanaugh were mochelim for whatever he might have done or not done. Who knows? So you know what? We'll follow their opinion. Does it, it doesn't make any sense. But you know, you know, it's, right? Rabbi, you're not you're not joking. There actually is there actually is a corollary here because the conservative ju uh, jurors will say will say that uh, the kedusha of the constitution. That, 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 that no, I understand. That's not my point. My point is 
that we're not going to say that the members of the court who are the more easygoing ones, that their opinion should automatically accept it, no. right? That's what, that's the issue, right? So now let's take a look at, yeah, I'm familiar with the problems of original intent and, 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 uh, and, and Leon Levy, et cetera, familiar. So I'm going to build on what Sherwin said, the Ritva, Rabbeinu Yom Tov Ben Abraham from Seville, a student of the Rashba and the Ra'ob, 13th century, late 13th century in, uh, in uh, Spain, comments here in Eruvin on this problem. And he says, how can two opposite opinions be Elohim Chaim? So he, he says, I found in the writings of the French, means he's quoting some Tosfot, we don't have this Tosfot, that they said there's a Midrash, then Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Shamayim. He saw that for every possible question that could exist, there were 49 arguments that would lead to one conclusion and 49 arguments that would lead to the opposite conclusion. You may be familiar with the value of solipsism, which normally we don't like, where we say that to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be able to prove that a sheretz was tahor 250 ways. Kavachomers and Zerashavas and Binyanav and all the other methods where you could actually prove basically up is down. And so Moshe says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so what's the halacha? And HaKadosh Baruch Hu's answer in this Midrash is whatever Beitin decides. What that means, though, is that, at least in this explanation of it, is that if you are engaged in the study of Torah and you are using the methodology of halacha, then your words are the words of a living God. And that means that you and I can both look at the same pasuk, both use proper methodology. And because we are individuals with our own um, uh, training and our own way of thinking, and therefore maybe the, the pieces which we find more compelling, you find less compelling and vice versa, will end up with opposite results. One of us isn't wrong. We're only wrong if we're misquoting a verse or misapplying a, a principle, but we're not wrong. And so therefore, they're both the words of the living God, but bottom line, we got to have halacha go one way or the other. And that, by the way, is kind of the nut of this whole shear. Halacha has got to go one or the other. But then the second question is, fine, so why Beit Hillel? Because they're nicer? So I think that there's actually something much deeper, much more powerful going on here uh, in, in this. And I think that what we're looking at in this sugya and several other sugyot is a slow but very clear and unilateral or unidirectional development from one mode of halachic ruling to another mode, right? Remember, we, we, I mentioned that we do not find disputes earlier on. We find rulings. We don't find disputes earlier on. And the first real disputants that we find are Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. And we've got dozens of them, more than dozens. All right. So I want to show you this, um, this passage in, uh, in the Tosefta in, actually, I'm going to show you one more thing in, uh, in uh, I have to do with this, and then bring it together. And I, I apologize, we may end up with a part three on this. And if Beit Hill Beit Shammai deserve a part three, that's okay. All right, I hope you guys are okay with it. It's just, there's too much material. All right, another machloket, and I'm going to show you why I'm bringing this machloket in, is a machloket in Masechet, uh, brachot. Um, sorry, I just I, actually I want to go back to this Tosefta in Sukkah. There's one thing I have to bring up here. Remember, I mentioned about Rabbi Yochanan Achoranit being maybe a, a critical character in that whole story. He was the one they visited in the Sukkah. So this Tosefta in Sukkah tells us as follows: Amar Blazer Rav Tzadok, Yochanan ben Achoranit. I was studying with Yochanan ben Achoranit. That's our Sukkah guy. I saw that he was eating dried bread. In other words, he had very little to eat. It was a year of famine, years of famine. I told my father, it's famous from Tzadok. Marley, from Tzadok of the time of the Churban, and we fasted all those years. He said, here, bring him some olives. I brought some olives to him. He's telling a story. I brought olives to my Rebbe, who was starving. He looked at them. He saw that they were moist. He said, I don't need olives. Now, background. Look at this Mishnah in Masachet Eduyot. 
source 15. It quotes a machloket, get ready, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. No surprise there, about a barrel of olives that are sitting in brine. Beit Shammai Umrim, you don't need to make a hole in the barrel to let the liquid out. The things are still tahor. And Beit Hillel said, you do have to make a hole. With the reason for that, we're not going to go into now and take us far afield. But Beit Hillel, who are, who are the stringent ones here, agree that if you made a hole, and the dregs plugged up the hole, it's okay. You made the hole, even though the dregs plugged up the hole, it's okay. I'm not concerned with the details. Now look back at the story. Rabbi Lazar Tzadok visits his rabbi, he sees he's eating garnish, he's starving. He comes back to his father, his father says, here, some olives bring them to him. He brings him the olives, he sees the olives are moist, he doesn't want to eat them. All right, now let's see. I went back and told my father he won't eat the olives. Amarli lechem or he said, go back and tell him. By the way, they come from a barrel that had a hole in it, like Beit Hillel. But the dregs plugged it up, that's why it's still moist. Okay. Now, what's the first thing it tells you? Rabbi Yochanan ate his regular food. Remember, we dealt with this in Chagiga. He ate his regular food in a state of Tahara. Okay. But here's the interesting part for us. Suddenly, the, the, the light goes on. Yochanan ben Achoranit is a Shamayite. That's the one they visited with the sukkah. He's a student of Beit Shammai. And get this. Even though he was a student of the of school of Shammai, he always followed Beit Hillel and Halacha. Remarkable statement. In other words, Rabbi Yochan and this is, by the way, um, apparently before the destruction of Mikdash, time-wise, is somebody who himself was a student of Beit Shammai. And nonetheless, in practice, he practiced like Beit Hillel. And therefore, Lozer Sadok told, uh, his father, Sadok told his son, go tell him that these things have the, the hachshar of Beit Hillel on them too. Suddenly, the story about the sukkah is really different. Because remember the story of the sukkah. Beit Hillel Beit Shammai said, the elders of Beit Hillel Beit Shammai went to visit this Yocham Ben who we would expect would follow Beit Shammai, but surprise, surprise, he always followed Beit Hillel. And when they saw him with the table in the house, the elders of Beit Shammai said, you've never fulfilled the mitzvah of sukkah. And by the way, we don't hear him retorting and saying, well, according to Beit Hillel, I do, and that's the halacha. So then that story gets more confusing. Okay. So I want to show you one more machloket and what come and, and, and a side story that relating to it. And then we'll try to at least tie things up for now. How do you say Shema? What's the choreography of Shema? So Beit Shammai Omrim, Mishnah in the first paragraph of Brachot, source 16. At night, everybody should recline and say Kriyat Shema. It was lie down and say Kriyat Shema. And in the morning, when you're saying Shema in the morning, stand up. Why? When you rise, when you lie down, when you rise up. So that means at night, lie down, say Shema. In the morning, stand up and say Shema. Beit Hillel Omer Kol Adam Korin Kedarkan. Mean however you are, standing, sitting, lying, doesn't matter. Shemar Vlech Tachavaderach. Vlech Tachavaderach as you walk down the way. So Beit Hillel now have to defend the Pasuk Beit Shama used. Why does it say when you lie down, when you rise up? The answer is pretty easy, which is It means that's not defining how, but the time. is not as you lie down, but at the time you lie down. And Kumacha is not as, as you stand up, but at the time people get up out of bed. Okay. I was walking on the way. Evidently, it got dark. I laid down on the side of the road to say Kriyat because I wanted to follow Beit Shammai. 
This is going to be tarful. I almost got killed. Muggers came by. I almost got killed. Amrulo, so guess what they said back to him? They didn't say to him, uh, you were doing a mitzvah, so it protected you. They didn't say to him, ooh, they said, you deserve to die. You violated the words of Beit Hillel. Wild stuff. All right, and now the Tosefta adds to this. It's a great story. Maaseb Rabbi Yishmael, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, you know them well. Shayu Shruin b'makom achad. They were together someplace. Vayar Rabbi Yishmael Muteh. Rabbi Yishmael was reclining on a bed. We assume this is a dinner. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah is He was sitting up or standing. He giasman kriyachma. It was time for Shema. So this is now evening, in the middle of the dinner, evening time for Shema. He nizkaf Rabbi Yishmael. Rabbi Yishmael sat up. Vihita Rabbi Lazar Azariah. Right? And Rabbi Lazar Azariah lay down. Amarla Rabbi Yishmael. Mazel Azar. What are you doing? Why are you lying, lying down? Amarlo Yishmael Achi. He said, Yishmael, my brother. Bro. It's like, it's like saying to somebody, you have a very nice beard. He said, okay, I'll, take, I'll shave it off. You have a very nice beard. Okay, I'll shave it off. What does that mean? I was sitting up. I leaned over. In other words, I leaned over to imitate you. And you were leaning over. You stood up. In other words, how come when I am flattering you by imitating you and, and showing that I want to observe your position, literally, you now do the opposite. You leaned over because you wanted to fulfill Beit words. I stood up to fulfill Beit words. Now, Beit by the way, doesn't say you have to stand up for night Shema. What do they say? You could be lying, you could be sitting, you could be walking, you could be standing, anything you want. That's why he adds, Because imagine this, the students are sitting around and they're watching us. The students are always watching us. Rabbi, the rabbi did this, the rabbi did that. They see me lying down and then they see you join me lying down and saying, they're going to figure, oh, halachaz we want to make sure they don't make that mistake of Allah Shammai. And therefore, you lay down. I stood up. All right? Okay. Um, I'm a little... Um, all right, we're just going to take a look at this. I don't really want to end on this note, but it is where it is. And again, this is not exhaustive. It's representative, but hopefully it's fairly representative. The Mishnah in Masachat Shabbat tells a story. Elu me'alachot, source 18. Elu me'alachot shamru baliyad chanina ben chizkia ben gurion shalu levakro. This is a great rabbi who was at the, at the time, evidently, towards just a couple decades before the destruction. And they went to visit him. Nimnu v'rabu beit shamaya beit hilel. This itself, this statement itself is just a fascinating piece. They counted, and it turned out there were more Beit Shammai in the room than a Beit Hillel. And on the spot, Beit Shammai pushed legislation through for 18 decrees that Beit Hillel disagreed with because they had the majority, they were able to pass them. And by the way, this speaks to a very different reality because this means that every case can be voted on and whatever the majority is, is the halacha. And Beit Shammai found a convenient moment where there's more of us than there are. Beit Hillel closed the door and let's pass the legislation. And the legislation passed. And the whole second half of the first chapter of Masachat Shabbat is about this. The Yushalmi here says something that's really scary. And I'm, I'm going to steal three extra minutes because I don't want to end with this. In this story, the students of Beit Shammai stood at the bottom. This is a, he, he was up in, an, in, a, in a loft. By you, Horgin Betamidei Beit Hillel. It's hard for me to just say the words in English. They were killing students of Beit Hillel. 
Tani shishamir alu v'ashar amdu alehem v'charvotu v'machim. According to one version, six of them actually went up and the rest of them stayed below with swords and lances. This is a, a, a battle, a, 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 a death battle. Because Beit Shammai want to make sure that they, that they get the legislation passed. Very strange. All right. We, have, we, we still have to put all this together. And what, what we will do next week is we will bring this to a close and make it try to get some clarity on what the nature of their relationship was, what the nature of how halakha plays out. I want to show you two or three more statements here just to add to the mix and think about it over the week. See what you come up with. Story in the Tosefta. We saw this, by the way, we did this when we were um, in, in Chagiga. Masem, remember the famous machloket between Hill and Shammai about smicha, right? And about bringing olot on Yom Tov. Masem Hillel himself comes into the Beit HaMikdash with the Korban Ola on Yom Tov and does smicha. Chavru alav Talmidei Shammai. Shammai's students. Now, by the way, this is not Beit Shammai. This is Talmidei Shammai, meaning this is not some school in the abstract that exists afterwards. This is the students of the living man, Shammai. And they all gang up on Hillel. I don't know any better way to say it than Chavru than gang up. Amarlam Bo'uru Shehina Keva. Hillel acted disingenuously. Said, no, you see, it's a female, which by the way means it can't be an Allah. Right? So, I'm bringing this And somehow he convinced them that it was a female and he got them out of the way. Notice again, and now this is very early. Beit Shammai suddenly were feeling their oats. They said, look, even Hillel himself admitted that I can't bring, you can't bring an Allah in Yom Tov. And, we, and we, they tried to get it officially passed to have the word go out, halacha follows us, you can't bring an Ola in Yom Vayasham Baba Ben Buta. There was one Chacham Baba Ben Buta, a very famous story with him and Herod. Shumi Talmidei Beit Shammai. So you understand, Beit Shammai already exists at the time that Shammai exists. Listen to that statement. That means that supposedly... At the very beginning, while Hillel's alive, Halacha follows Beit Hillel. A very different report than what we just got, that in Yavne, the Bat Kol made that announcement. Halach Levi had called Son Kedar Vemidan Bazara. He brought all the big animals, brought them to the Azara. I'm providing it for everybody. Come bring Olot, Shlamim, everything. Do Smichanim. 100% like Beit Hillel. He's a student of Beit Shammai, and he's promoting Beit Hillel's position. Nobody challenged the fact that Allah follows Beit Hillel. Do we have conflicting reports? We certainly do. Do we have conflicting reports, A, about when Machlokot gets started? We do. Do we have conflicting reports, and this is the critical thing, about at what point, if at any point, the halacha gets ultimately decided in favor of Beit Hillel as a sweeping statement. And, uh, and at, from that point on, Beit Shammai is not a position to adopt. Do we have that? We think so. Except for this famous statement, which will end. In the sugi about Chanukah, remember Beit Shammai, Beit Hillel, Chanukah, eight to one, one to eight. Remember that? Right. And we have a story. Amar Rabbi Bachana, Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan tells a story. Sedan is a town on the north coast of the Kinneret. And ostensibly, Rabbi Yochanan is telling a story about something he saw. There were two elders in Sidon. One of them lit, lit one candle the first night, and then two and three, and the other lit eight candles the first night, and then down to one. Which means, by the way, we now have one town, two elders, two opposite practices, well after Yavne, well after the Mishnah is, is sealed and canonized. What do we do with that? And if that were not confusing enough, because God forbid we should walk away from this with any sense of order and things being put together, we have the following Tosefta and Trumot. At what point do you start taking Trumot from the wine press? 
right, when a certain amount of come, when does we go then we go Okay, good. At what point is, does Tumai happen? Either when Maser Yishon has been taken, Maser Shini. I'm not concerned with the details. I'm concerned with the stuff in the big print. That's why I put it in the big print. Amar Biura. Halacha kidivrei Beit Shammai. All right? Halacha kidivrei Beit Shammai. This is Rabbi Yehuda, well after the bat call. El Shanagu Arabim kidivrei Beit Hillel. The halacha follows Beit Shammai, but guess what? The common practice is Beit Hillel. Now, to sum it up, bring it together, what we've, taken, what we've looked at over the course of the last hour is a series of statements about Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, observations about how their practices intersected. If at any particular point there was a decision made, either a wholesale decision or a piece-by-piece -piece decision about what the halacha should be, was there any sort of comfort level, as we saw in Saidan, about having two opposite practices going on, even in the same town? The reports are not consistent with them with each with themselves, and they take us in a few different directions. And we've got to make some sense of it. I want to take you to the the last source I'm going to look at. This is my stealing three minutes from from us, um, which is the following. Tosefta, uh, and I'm going to summarize the part that's the the part that's uh, that's uh, not bolded. Rabbi Yossi tells the following story. He says originally there's there was no machloket. Originally there was no machloket. He doesn't mean people didn't squabble. People squabbled. He means legal halachic machloket. Ella he tells the following story. He says there was the baiting of seventy one. I'm paraphrasing in English. There was the baiting of seventy one in the Beit Hamikdash. There were Beit Bateidin of twenty three throughout this, the country. And there were two Batei Din, either of three or of 23 different Girsaot in Yerushalayim, one in Harbait, one in the ramparts before the Azara. And here we go. If somebody had a question, they would go to the local Beit Din. And if there was no Beit Din there, he'd go to the Beit Din that was nearby. Now, here's the phrase I want you to see. Im Shamu Amrulahan. He would go to the local Beit Din and they would ask the question. And if the Beit Din had heard the halacha, they would tell him. Im lav, if they didn't have, they didn't have a tradition, who will flash in the Beit Din Then he, the one who's asking the question, and the elder of the Beit Din that did not have the information go together to Yerushalayim to one of the outside Batei Din. And they asked them the question. And again, if they heard a tradition, they told them. If they didn't, then the elder of that Beit Din and this elder and the guy who asked the original question would go up and up until finally we got to the bit to the Beit Din of 71. Right? And now, what would they do? The question would be asked. If they heard a tradition, that was it. By the way, that tells you that halacha, at this point, the way it's reported is purely based on tradition not based on argumentation, not based on methodology, not based on reasoning, not based on creative exegesis, based on tradition, and that's it. If they heard a tradition, they told them. If not, then they would vote, and whatever the vote was, that was halacha. That's it. Finished. That's halacha. Right? And then notice what Riosi says. Mishirabu talmidei shamai v'hilel shaloshim shu kol From the time that we had an explosion meaning a, a growth of the students of Shammai and Hillel that did not properly serve their masters. They didn't properly attend to their studies. That's the way you read it. Here, Israel. Suddenly there is an explosion of disputes in Am Yisrael, and it looks as if we have two different Torahs. In other words, within the rabbinic community, it looks like sectarianism already. It looks like there's the Hillelites and the Shamites, and they have two different religions, Kiva. Right? Now, this is Rabiosi reporting on, and Rabiosi is uh, considered to be the historian among Chachamim, Rabiosi reporting on the history of Machloket. And it says, up until the times of Tamir Shamai Behilel, or shall we say, up until the times that the central court in Jerusalem, as long as they had their their dominance, 
over the people and the acceptance of the people, there was no machloket, no reason for machloket. What do you do in practice? What you do is what you what we've always done. And if you don't know what we've always done, ask somebody who has a tradition, they'll tell you what we've always done. And now you find a case where nobody has a tradition, like a new thing, it'll go all the way to the upper court, they'll discuss it, they'll take a vote, whatever the vote is, that's the halacha, finished. No machloket. Rabbi Yossi clearly bemoans machloket here. He lambastes the students of Shammai and Hillel for not doing their job properly as students. What we have yet to do next week is to try to make sense of all these reports of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, put them into some sort of historic framework of when things happened, at what point halacha became usually like Beit Hillel, but not always. And then to come back to our original question, see why is this Lotit Godadu? How does Lotit Godadu play into this? And if possible, to touch a little bit into our original sugyan in Yivamot, which will now be three weeks old, when we get to it, uh, to see if we can get some hints from that sugya itself about uh, solution to this uh, to these issues.